your Bibles and or your devices and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Had a great day yesterday. Uh, again, I want to thank so many of you who participated in the help group day yesterday, both in distributing the food and, and in the uh, closed closet upstairs. I think we had close to 300 families again, and you guys make it possible through uh, just your giving, but also it takes just a lot of physical bodies to get everything done, and so we're really grateful and appreciate all that you do, and it was just, just another great day, and it's just uh, it's really just cool to be able just to help people and not expect anything. We just do it because of the love of Jesus. Uh, it's been good to us, and we're able to be good to someone else, who's, uh, people who are in need. So, again, thank you, specifically if you came and worked yesterday, but for all of you, as you give, it, it makes that possible. So a lot of other things as well. All right, turn to Acts chapter 4 if you haven't already, and let's go down to verse 12. Obviously, as we continue through the book of Acts and we're looking at the kingdom of God and us, us fulfilling the Great Commission, it continuing with us and generation after generation until Jesus comes back, our call on us as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the call on our lives as Christians, the church, is to go into all the world and make learner followers of Jesus Christ. That is the Great Commission. Last thing he said before he left the planet if for no other reason, that makes it real significant that he said, I want you to go. As you go is literally what he said. As you go, make disciples of me and I will be with you always. And that has not changed. That's the call on our lives. That's the commission for us to continue to do. And so what we're going to look at today, and we talked about it, we began to talk about it last week and Peter alluded to it in his prayer, that we need to understand that as Christians, we see it very vividly here, and we will see it continually as you go through the book of Acts, and you can study history. And even today, there are believers on, in, in peril of their very lives because they boldly witness for Jesus Christ. So we're not in peril of losing our lives in this nation. But there are believers today, as I, as I stand here and speak today, and as, as we are here together, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. There are believers around the globe that for sharing their faith, for, for, com, for converting and becoming a follower of Jesus Christ from certain other faiths, that a death sentence is passed on them, sometimes even on their families. And we need to understand that Jesus said that's the way it's going to be, that the time will come when they will kill you and think they're doing a, a God thing. They think they're doing a good thing. They think they're doing a religious, their right thing to kill you in the name of their God, whoever their God might be. We've seen it somewhat in our nation, 9-11 obviously being the most graphic example that if you can kill infidels in giving up your own life, you've done a great thing for Allah. And the sad thing about that is the moment you die, you step into eternity and you don't face Allah because he don't exist. You know who you face? Jesus Christ. And he will be your judge. And so for us, we need to understand why it is absolutely vital that we realize that persecution is real. It was real for 
Peter and John, it's real in our culture today. Someday it may become real in the United States of America, and then we're going to find out how serious the Christians really are about their faith, including moi, including you. If they were to walk in and say, the next time you stand in that pulpit and declare Jesus Christ to be the only way a man can know God, we will take your life. Would I still stand here and do that? I hope so. That's what I should do. I pray that would be the case. Maybe not. Would I be bold enough? I, I pray that I would. Boy, you think, just think about it. You need to, and that's why as you study history, and I, and I love history in all its facets. Uh, Mary and I were talking about it this week. We were talking about my dad again. I shared a little bit about him uh, on Father's Day, on Mother's Day, and in, in talking about not having that relationship. And I was thinking my dad fought in World War II in the Pacific Islands, and and I really miss just being able to sit down because I love the World War II. I'm fascinated by it. I'm constantly watching documentaries about it, uh, everything I can see. And I just love uh, World War II because my, part of it is my dad fought there. I had an uncle that was uh, wounded in uh, Europe. My dad fought in the Pacific. And, and I even have a friend to this day who was a fighter pilot in World War II. And he's in his late 90s and still the meanest man I've ever met. And he's one, he is one tough dude at 98 years old. And... He didn't like to talk about it. And the veterans that I have talked to, World War II veterans over the years, they really don't like to, it's a difficult thing for them to talk about. But the point is, I just, I love history because the one thing you can do in looking back in history as a believer and being reminded that scripture tells us certain things and people who, even people who don't believe the Bible can't deny that history occurred. They can't deny that the events that we're studying and the life of Jesus Christ and now the life of Peter and the life of Paul, as we see as we go through the book of Acts, that these things occurred. So for us as Christians, we need to, from two perspectives, learn it. We need to learn history so we can benefit from their testimony. We could see how bold they were as we're going to look at today. And not just history, but then from a principal perspective, in our lives as Christians. What can I learn from the examples here of Peter and John and the early church? And later we'll see the Apostle Paul. And as, as we just study scripture in general, my, my 930 class, for example, we're studying the life of Samuel and to see the, the difference between Samuel and other quote-unquote priests in that day. And the difference being one was godly and one was not. And there are a lot of men who stand behind pulpits this morning around our country who are not speaking the truth. They're speaking whatever they want to speak to manipulate those who might listen to them for their own personal gain, which is what the priests were doing in the days of Samuel. And God was not pleased with that, and they paid a price. So we need to learn the principles of God's word, how they're worked out in history, and then how do we apply them in our lives today going forward to fulfill that great commission. So what we're going to look at today is having boldness in Acts chapter 4, kind of where we left off last week as we move verse 12 and following. Boldness when that persecution comes, as we see the example here of Peter and John. So you get to verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, and what you see in verse 12 is this incredibly bold testimony of Peter. And the focus is we ended up talking about this last week, but the focus is the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ. There always have been, as, man, as long as man's been on the planet, and there always will be, 
gods, plural. They're always, man has always tried to figure out life, the, the, the cosmos around him, how things happen, how can I get victory over my enemies, how, enemies, how can I make my crops more fertile, my land more fertile so I'll have a better harvest, how can, how can I get what I want? And so what man would do, always has done, is create in his own mind gods. And then bow to those gods, hoping and doing things for those gods, hoping to get that god on their side so that they would benefit. When I was a kid, uh, even prior to being a Christian, was growing, I've always been an avid, voracious reader, and I, I read everything in Roman and Greek mythology I could get my hands on. I was absolutely just fascinated by it and couldn't get enough. I loved to read it. And then as a believer, now obviously years later and growing and learning and going back and looking, whether you go back to Egypt and you pick any, uh, the Phoenician culture and the Babylonian culture, pick a culture, go back and study history. And history's always been man trying to figure out everything. And one of his ways of doing it was creating gods in his own image. And by the way, scripture talks about that repeatedly. We joke about it all the time in my 930 class, and they've all got it now down to, it, it's our mantra. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, you will have. I wonder why he made that the first one. Why not the ninth one? Why not the tenth one? Why the first one? Because he wanted them to understand. He knew. How much about them did God know? Everything. He, while, by the way, while he was telling them that, he was watching us. He sees everything simultaneously. He sees the end from the beginning. He knew man because man was unique. Man was the only thing he created with the capacity to create a God. He was, it was the only thing that God created that could worship him, which is what was God's desire was, was for man to love, trust, and worship him. Instead, beginning in the Garden of Eden, man decided to what? Love self, trust Satan or self, and worship self. We're going to eat that fruit. And the result was sin and death. God knew God is omniscient. He's omnipotent and he's omnipresent. So being God, he knew what we were going to do. He created us with the capacity to do that. We are free, moral agents with an intellect and an intelligence. And so he said here, I want you to desire me, I want you to love me, I want you to worship me, trust me, and obey me. And here's what he told them in the Ten Commandments. When you do that, and the message of the whole Mosaic Law is this, when you trust me, God, and obey me, God, love me, trust me, and obey me, you will be blessed. And that means spiritually happy. When you choose not to, when you choose self, you choose to disobey, and the term he uses is hate. When you choose to hate me, trust self, and disobey me, you will be cursed. In other words, you can do it my way. Remember, my dad used to, this one of my dad's favorite ways of communicating uh, the spanking I was about to get. If you do it my way, it won't hurt. But if you choose to do it your way, guess what? It's going to hurt. And you know what? He was right. 
Just like God's right. You choose to follow me, you will be blessed. But if you choose not to, and even we've done this morning, even in the life of a believer, one who's born again, one who's a Christ follower, despite what many false teachers would say, everything's not always rosy and you're not always going to get what you want. You're not always going to have all the money you want. You're not always going to be perfectly good at health. You're, you're going to struggle. Life is going to be hard. But what God wants is for you to trust him in the hard moments. It's easy to trust him in the easy, good moments, right? Trust him in the hard moments and watch him take care of you. He may not give you the money you want. He'll give you the money he wants you to have. And then he wants you to steward it, manage it, to glorify him. Same thing with your health. Because whether you like it or not, again, despite what false teachers would say, the older you get, and by the way, we could go around the room and we're all living testimonies, the older you get, guess what happens to your body? It deteriorates. If you don't believe me, hang around in the parking lot afterwards, I'll give you many examples from my personal life. I went to see one of my doctors this week, and I just went in for one simple little test. And the girl pulls out my file, it's like this thick. And she goes, I said, you, I said look here. <laughs> I said, I know you ain't got all day to read that. I'm just here for one blood test. We're looking for this one thing. So if you'd go ahead and, and put that needle in my arm here and take that one vial of blood, we can cut this down to about five minutes. She goes, well, I don't see it. I said, the, the doctor's here. I saw him wandering the halls. Just go ask. I promise all he wants is, because I already had my physical, he just wants one blood test. It's a follow-up. I promise. She goes, all right, I'm going to trust you. Give me your arm. And then she, you know, she's mad. Then she, she starts popping that arm. You know how they got to find that vein. He's popping that arm. I said, look here, that hurts. Now, we can go back to you reading the file if you want to, but you, I'm trying to help you. You're, now, now, that hurts. So she takes the blood, and they call me late that afternoon. And I said, yes, sure enough, it was exactly what I thought. It was, everything was good. But you got to do what the doctor says, right? Now, I want us to understand, and I want you to focus for just a moment on this idea of exclusivity. It's so important. Look at Acts 4, verse 12. We know the context, Peter. They've been arrested because of the healing of the lame man. The Sanhedrin went over all that last week. Now, verse 12. There's no, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Three ways he says the same thing. Men, under heaven, and we. We as human beings, under heaven, on earth, must be saved. By the way, it's really fascinating in the context. The word saved in verse 12 is the exact same Greek word that's used to describe the lame man being made well. Please don't miss that context. It's really important to understand what's going on here. He's, he's now addressing boldly, we talked about last week, preaching to the Sanhedrin. And he's saying to them, God made well the lame man, Greek. God made well. But also, if you want to be made well, if I want to be made well, if all men under heaven want to be made well or saved, verse 12, who do they have to come to? Who's, again, the whole reason they're arrested and they're, they're before the Sanhedrin is because in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember the guy said to Peter, he was begging for money. And what did Peter say to him? It's just a beautiful quote. What did Peter say to him? Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He was made well physically, spiritually. And if I want to be made well spiritually, verse 12 again 
We'll get to the, the real import of this in just a moment. Verse 12, if I want to be made well, if you on the Sanhedrin want to be made well, if any man on planet earth wants to be made well, then or today, whose name does he have to go to? Please look at verse 12 and say it out loud for me. Jesus' name. Now, the exclusivity of Jesus' name. That's what he's claiming. And I realize we, we ended on this note last week. In the United States of America, I'm obviously standing up here profaning everything that has become what religion is in our country because we are a pluralistic culture, which simply says you have no right as a pastor, you have no right as a Christian to say Jesus is the only way a man can know God. Why do we have that right? And by the way, this is so important. And it's the real focus for today. Why is the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ absolutely vital to us boldly having a testimony? Because he said what? I am the, the, and the, no man comes to the, but, and the word, little word the, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father, is the Greek definite article, which means I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life by which you can come to the only Father. Now you can create a God, and we talked about it a moment ago, and man's always done that. You can create a God in your own image. Romans 1 talks about that. You get down there, you worship the, the creation rather than the creator. That's what idols are. And your, your idol can be yourself, but you were created. That's all idols are, is worshiping something other than the creator. It could be yourself, it could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be your job, it could be money, it could be popularity, it could be power. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be like the Canaanites, it could be Molech, it could be Astrid, it could be Baal. You pick a god, it could be in Egypt, it could have been Pharaoh, it could have been uh, Ra, it could have been the, uh, the sun god, it could have been the Nile River. Go by on and on, Greek mythology, all the different things, the god of war, god, the god of the harvest, the god of wine, the god of partying. That, was probably, that one's still popular today. <laughs> we get our word bacchanalia, that was from the Greek the god Bacchus, the god of partying. That's what he was. So man's always done that. So, and by the way, the Sanhedrin, whom Peter is addressing, they were doing the same thing and calling it Judaism. They were saying, we're worshiping the God of the scriptures, but they weren't. They worshiped that God as they wanted to make that God fit their construct. And by the way, a lot of people go to church, Christian churches, and do the same thing today. Not what does God say and you follow God. Remember he said, I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. You have no other gods before me. He said, you got to do it my way. You don't get to decide what the way is. Who's the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And another way of putting it, and probably the best understanding of the context, Jesus said, I am the way because I am the truth and the life. You could try all these other ways. Now, back to the idea of being exclusive. All religions are not equal. They said, what about sincerity? You could be sincerely wrong, correct? And if two things are mutually exclusive, they can't both be right. They can both be what? Wrong. We could be absolutely wrong. But the testimony of history and the testimony of who Jesus Christ was, has, he's proven himself to be exactly who he said he was. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, the Greek definite article. There are, there are no others. And so the difference is, the Apostle Paul said, for example, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Apostle John wrote, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus himself 
over and over, made it clear. I am God before Abraham was. He said to the same group of people, I am. So what's the point of I am the way, the truth, and the life? You're not, Peter is saying here to the Sanhedrin, there is no name given among men under, given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. You're not saved by a force. You're not saved, saved by religious activity. You're not saved by, by uh, whatever philosophy of life you want to gravitate to, and everybody has one. And by the way, we as Christians, and this is the point I want to make sure that we walk away here from, we believe in the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ. We, however, respect every human being's right to worship as they see fit. Now, if their worship leads them to kill other human beings, that's a criminal act that is to be dealt with. But when I'm witnessing to my neighbor, I, I love my neighbor, I care about my neighbor, I want them to see who Jesus Christ is, and if they choose to be an atheist or choose to be an agnostic or choose to be Muslim or choose to be a Buddhist, choose to be a secular humanist, whatever they choose, I respect their right, I want to dialogue with them, I want to interact with them, but my perspective as a Christian is Jesus is the only way. Why? Because it's the truth. Jesus doesn't show us the way. He's what? He is the way. You don't work to gain his favor. It's a free gift. Examine every other religion that man has ever created, and they're all based on what? Me doing something. Christianity says, you can't do enough. I'll do it for you. It's unique because he's unique. He's the only one who could do it because he's God in the flesh. He's the absolute. That's what truth means. That's why he said truth will set you free. So back to the idea of sincerity. It's not about being sincere. I, I, I know people who are sincerely committed to what they believe. But a person can be sincerely wrong. That's why it's about, it's a very simple thing. It's about what? Not sincerity, but truth. What's the truth? You can't both be right. So you have a bold testimony. C.S. Lewis, I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. You never want to read one of his books, however, if you've got anything to do for the next year. And make sure you're absolutely alone and there'll be no distractions if you're going to read anything by C.S. Lewis. He said these words, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun. Not only because I see it, but because by it, all things are seen. I wish we had time to develop that quote in depth. That is incredible. I don't believe in Jesus except because I can see him. Let me paraphrase, give you the Randy version. I don't believe in Jesus simply because I see him, what he does in my life and the lives of other people, what I've seen him do in history. I believe in him because outside of him, it does not make sense. You see that? Everything is by him. That's why the Bible says so, in so many different ways. In the beginning was the word, the words with God, and the word was God. All things that were made were made by him, through him, and for him. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Moses brought us the law, John said in that great prologue. Jesus brought us grace and truth so we can understand the fulfillment of the law. That's why Jesus said, I have fulfilled it. And he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah. So cool. He reads from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue there in Jerusalem. And then he says these words of 
by the way, in case you're not paying attention, this is the way he said it. But he said, y'all pay attention. Uh, Today, these words that I just read are fulfilled in your sight. Whoa, I get goosebumps and I wasn't even there. And then he sat down. There's a visiting rabbi. He just reads the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. Before he hands it back, he says, by the way, these words are fulfilled in your sight today. Uh, The attendant's like, whoa, I ain't touching that. That's who he is. Because he always has been. He's the great I am. That's why the exclusivity thing, we've got to get past. And by the way, it's become a big deal in evangelical circles, this pluralism thing in the United States. It's become a big deal in even evangelical circles. I heard a name of a guy, and I won't mention his name here until I know for sure it's a fact, but I heard this week about a, a, a very well-known evangelical pastor, guy who people, uh, churches all over our country have used his stuff for years, been flocking to him. And I heard him say this this week, I heard some, someone told me, he said, I have not checked it out for myself, that um, there's some things that we've been believing all along that maybe we need to re-examine. That scares me. We have to stick to the truth of the word of God, that it's absolute authority. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. That bold testimony. Now, last point about this, and then we'll move to number two. We have to stick to the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter, the guy who's speaking here in Acts 4, later writes those great words in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you with what two things? Gentleness and respect. Not arrogance, not not nanny nanny boo boo. I'm sure they use terms like that but with gentleness, respect for where they are, what they believe, where they're coming from, lovingly share the truth. But, come back, look at number one again, lovingly share the truth, but you got to have the boldness to do it. We talked about this last week. It's true historically. So again, even if you don't believe the Bible, that's fine. It's, it's still true historically. When has the church grown the most as far as its impact and numerically? When has the church grown the most? It's when it was persecuted the worst. That's why the church in America suffers so much. We're not persecuted. We're just happy. We're just rolling along. We're not persecuted. This church exploded because it was persecuted and it was bold in the midst of the persecution and would not back down. They told Rome and they told the Jews, they told the Sanhedrin, well, you do what you got to do. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Just not. You do what you got to do. Secondly, look at verse 13, the bold witness that Jesus' name has enemies inherent in what we're talking about, the enemies of Jesus' name. Look at verse 13. Now when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. They see the boldness, the Sanhedrin sees the boldness, and now they hear the boldness, the testimony of Peter and John. Here's what makes this so cool. If you were a Jew, 
and they dragged you before the Sanhedrin. They arrested you and dragged you before the Sanhedrin. Any other Jew would have been what? Cowering in fear and terror that the Sanhedrin might look down on me because they had the power to ruin your life and your family's life. As a matter of fact, two months approximately prior, how had Peter behaved? He cowered before them too, didn't he? When Jesus went before them, where was he? Was he right there supporting his man, Jesus? No, he denied him. They were as powerful a group politically and religiously as you could possibly be. They do not understand what, how Peter and John can be this bold. What's before them is they look at these guys, they're ignorant, or should be, they're untrained. They should be terrified, but they're not. They're not nervous. They're bold. They're self-confident, and they're articulate. And they ain't even been to one of our schools. There's ignorant Galileans. How could this possibly be? They've got a dilemma. I want you to see the Sanhedrin's dilemma. Look at verse 14. Seeing the man, the healed man who had been healed, standing with them. I love this. We've got a little object lesson. They didn't even, they didn't have PowerPoint presentations. So they said, hey, we'll go before the Sanhedrin. I know what. Since we don't have our PowerPoint presentation put together, let's just have him walk in. When's the first time the man ever walked? The day they healed him. First time he ever stood up, they got a dilemma. Verse 14, they could say nothing against it. So here's their dilemma. First, we can't deny the miracle occurred. This wasn't somebody they went, some charlatan they brought in. We talked about this before. This was a guy everybody knew, and there was no doubt that he had been healed. They cannot deny the miracle. And second, they don't even know how to explain it. These uneducated, untrained, simple Galilean fishermen, not scribes, not rabbis, not trained in any way. They should be rude and illiterate, yet here they are. And notice their conclusion. Look at the end of verse 13. You know how they finally figured it out? I love this. Look at the end of verse 13. How'd they figure it out? Oh, they've been with whom? Jesus. Talked a little bit about this last week. The Sanhedrin's mindset about Jesus was what? I thought we got rid of him. I, th- I thought this was over with. Kind of like that uncle that just keeps showing up. You thought you moved and you didn't give him your forwarding address, he found you anyway. I have a cousin down in Mississippi that's that way. They, f- they found me anyway. They call- somebody called me the other day and said, are you related to Larry Lockley? And I said, it depends. And... It was when Mary and I were first married, my cousin Larry had been in prison for murder. And when he got out, it was the first person he called. Well, Mary never met any of my family, and this was not. <laughs> Other than my parents and, and my two brothers, she never met any of my family. And I'm telling you, there's some rough people on my dad's side of the family. And Larry, to this day, is, is a, he's a mean dude. <laughs> and he found me to chew me out about something. Every time I see him, it's, he's got some reason to chew me out. But... Uh, it's getting better because his son died and I went and spent some time with him. So uh, it did his son's funeral. So it's getting better. You never know what God's going to do. You, you get, you just get, I'm telling you, I was terrified of Larry. And he wanted to come to our house and Mary said, what's he like? I said, well, he just got out of prison. She said, for what? 
And I said, well, I really don't want to tell you, Mary. She goes, Randy, what do you got? For? I said, murder. She said, and he's coming here. <laughs> she said, no, he ain't. And he didn't. All right. I met him somewhere. So they see that he's been with Jesus. It's a verification of several things. Jesus' authority, Jesus' training of them, Jesus' power, his ability. What did Peter say when when the man was healed? Peter made it clear. It's not Peter healing you. Who's doing it? The name of Jesus Christ. But the Sanhedrin, they're... Here's their dilemma. I thought Jesus was dead. I thought his message was dead. The miracle here, guys standing right there, the message of Peter, what they've seen since Pentecost, the signs and the wonders, all that the Holy Spirit is doing in Jerusalem, all that's going on, all that cumulative evidence is saying, whether they want to believe it or not, and this is a thing, you can't confuse me with the truth, All the cumulative evidence was saying to him, Jesus is alive, just like he said he would raise himself up and he claimed to be the Messiah. Look at verse 11 for just a moment. Just 11, verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. He's quoting their scriptures and his scriptures, which has become the chief cornerstone. Talked about this last week, but he uses their scriptures, they're Jewish, and he's preaching to them the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, look at the Sanhedrin's decision, verse 15, their decision. They can't say anything about the miracle, it's it's a no-doubter, they can't deny it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men, Peter and John? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them as evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They cannot deny the miracle. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now note, they are the ultimate court of truth and justice according to Jewish law. Their mandate was to always seek God's will, to always do what was right. They know the truth that this man has been healed. They cannot deny it. Now what's their decision? Verse 17 and 18, what's their decision? We're going to threaten them and tell them not to talk about this anymore even though apparently it's the truth. What did they really care about? Did they really care about truth? Did they care about God's will? What did they care about? Real simple. Their political position. That's all they cared about. I love this. When I read this, it's kind of funny to me, and some of you will appreciate this. I'm reading this. They said, all right, we know we can't deny the miracle. We've got to stop this from spreading among the people, even though they're doing a good thing. We'll see later on. Peter said, what are we being judged for doing a good thing to a helpless man. So you want to threaten us. I think of double secret probation from a movie. Look, we cannot have you talking about this anymore. They threaten them. 
Because they thought being Jewish, if the Sanhedrin threatens you, you would be what? Terrified. Figured that would be it. All they care about. We can't have this spreading among the people. Let's threaten them. Bold witness. Now, let's think history for just a moment. At this point in history, at this moment, as the Sanhedrin threatens them severely, puts them on double secret probation, and tells them, don't talk about this among the people anymore. Do not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. At that moment in time in history, the church has grown from 120 to thousands. And as we're going to see, it's going to continue to just explode. Thousands upon thousands of people, even some of the priests at the temple, the Levites, even some of the Sanhedrin will come to Jesus Christ, Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah. We're the Sanhedrin, but Jesus is God. It's a huge difference. Just one more quick thing. Look at number three. We're not going to go over all of number three. We're just going to hit one part, and then we're going to be done. I want you to see the power of Jesus' name, the encouragement of the name of Jesus Christ. Look at verse... 19. What's the first word in verse 19? But. They threaten them thinking that this will solve the problem. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Here's what I want you to notice and then we're going to move into time of communion today. Peter and John's answer to the Sanhedrin, you judge. I never really thought about that until I was studying this a couple of weeks ago and it hit me. I've read the verse, I've taught it, thought about it, but it never really hit me until this week. They say to them, whether it's right to listen to you as Jews before the Sanhedrin, they've been respectful, they're listening. This is the ultimate court in the land. They say, you judge. By the way, what was their job description? To judge, that's what hit me. Peter said, you guys are judges. You figure it out. Is it more, and by the way, in their own Jewish law. Even before the Sanhedrin, if your conscience, because of their law, led you to obey God and not them, it was right. And that's what Peter is teaching them. You judge. That's your job. You swear allegiance to Moses. You are Abraham's descendants. You ought to know what's right. You're the Sanhedrin. Verse 20. For we, Peter and John, cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot. In other words... There's a higher authority in our lives. Yes, we're Jews and we submit to the authority of the Sanhedrin, but there's a higher authority in our lives, and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. The God you say you serve as the Sanhedrin, that's the God we're speaking about, and we cannot stop doing it. You judge. You decide. But we're going to talk about Jesus. Would you bow your heads, please?
Father, as we close out our time together today, celebrating the Lord's Supper, it's very appropriate that we do that because of who our Savior is, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior of mankind, the one true God, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we take communion and the Lord's Supper together, I simply pray as believers that we would focus on the blood of Jesus Christ, given that we might have forgiveness of sins, the body of Jesus Christ that was broken that we might be saved. And we would remember the exclusivity of that sacrifice that he alone can save, that we would boldly share that with gentleness and respect in our world. We commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share.